everyone. So the last time I didn't have time to finish going over the suggested correction of uh, your first paper, uh, your first literary analysis for this year on the Walter Scott's Ivanhoe. So what I'd like to do is to go back um, to Walter Scott and pick up where I left off. I'll try to keep it as short and synthetic as possible and obviously um, if you have any questions you need to write to me, you know, just drop me a line and uh, I'll be happy to answer your questions. So I think um, what I did was that I I'd introduced Walter Scott in broad brushstrokes and talked about his, uh, his brand of romanticism, very generally speaking. Um, what I'd like to go back to is the problem statement that I uh, gave and that I suggested was going to be the backbone of my commentary. Obviously, I played a little bit on words. I'm not going to explain uh, the pun, because um, the minute you start explaining your pun or your joke, um, you're just acknowledging that your pun or your joke was a failure. So I'm not going to do that, but I'm just going to repeat what the possible problem statement, what a possible problem statement for this text was, and I'm going to um, emphasize the methodical, methodological principles that guided uh, the stating of such a problem. I first said you need to connect your problem statements to the preliminary remarks you made, by which I mean the various tensions, the various sets of tensions that are highlighted uh, prior to this uh, slide. And the problem statement I came up with was something like that. In light of these tensions, a key question addresses how this passage roots history in a novelistic form through a historical narrative that plants the seeds of a national narrative. So as you can see, I'm using some of the concepts I introduced previously in the previous step of my introduction. Um, I, I'm not necessarily using we, the first person, singular, um, plural pronoun, and I'm not necessarily using I either, but if there's a place where you can use your I pronoun, make it this one, because it's really the moment when you're really um, taking a stand um, and voicing your own personal reading of what is at stake in this passage. So I use the concept of, um, the, the Mephilisimus concept of roots in order to um, both play on words and um, move from the more, I'd say, literal level to the more metaphorical and meta-discursive level. And also, I think among the strong concepts that I'm using in this problem statement is the concept of um, history, history writing, and narrative, the, and, and this tension between a novelistic narrative and a national narrative, which is a thing you could have connected with our current affairs discussions on um, on national narratives. So what I'm going to be doing now is that I'm going to go over the plan that I thought of. Obviously it took me longer than four hours to come up with this, um, this suggested correction, um, because I wanted to be as methodical as possible. So I'm going to explain what these uh, sections 
are about, and also I'm going to refer to the the various examples in the text um, using color coding. You know, I'm, I'm, I like colors, and uh, also I think they're really handy, really convenient um, when drafting your text commentary. So here we go with the first section on rooting the narrative in time. This is a very um, um, it's not a descriptive section, but it's the most obvious section in the sense that it focuses on what can be seen, what can be heard, and the way the plot develops. So I'm really trying to put myself in the shoes of a reader, you know, the common reader, your average reader. Um, and I'm trying to um, pin down what the, the, the impressions you get, the first impressions you get as you read this text. Level rooting the narrative in time is a nice way for me to characterize the, the narrator's approach to, um, to um, his story. With the first um, sub section on scattering the seeds of the historical novel, really, my point here will be to show that at the onset of this novel, we know that this is passage that is taken from chapter one it's not necessary the very beginning of it otherwise it may be um, uh, signaled but really the idea is to suggest that at the beginning of this novel the narrator speaks several languages um, and this is the most obvious comment that can be made that he speaks as a dialectician as a linguist and as an ethnographer so I've referred to a number of um, examples of this multifaceted of approach to narration that can be found in this text and I've used this brownish reddish sort of color um, to highlight examples it doesn't mean that you have to quote all of your examples in your subsections otherwise your section is going to be far too long um, and you won't have time to, to complete your paper and to complete your essay which is a thing you really want to avoid at all cost but um, there are a number of examples that are really telling and um, so you don't have to multiply your examples and it's nice to, to have one or two examples and pause and really dissect this example. I think I'm not going to be doing here because my uh, focus really is on plan construction and on how to uh, stop commenting in a linear line by line sort of way. But uh, if you look at the examples here on your um, on your color coded text, um, this idea that uh, the narrator speaks from the vantage point of the 19th century about medieval times can be um, uh, can be proven using a lot of different examples. So four generations had not sufficed. Uh, the event of the Battle of Hastings is referred to. Um, the narrator is also, in a way, trying to describe the readers who are not accustomed to uh, those times, obviously, and who are eager to read about medieval times because it was very much on trend at the time. So he's giving a lot of details about um, life at court, at court in the castles of the great nobles where the pomp and state of the court was emulated. Norman French was the only language employed. So he's really also 
for me emphasis on the language that was used and how language gradually came to evolve um, as a result of the coexistence of, um, of, uh, of the French, of the Normans and the Anglo-Saxons, a, a thing you can see here um, around the middle part of the text. Um, in the margins, I included the various sections and subsections. Such and such passage could be included in. It doesn't mean it has to go there. It doesn't mean that I'm boxing in stuff in my text concrete. It's just a suggestion that you can use those um, those quotations there. Um, and I think uh, the narrator here is being really explicit about everything, really trying to be as thorough and um, um, pedagogical in a way. The second idea I think could have been developed quite easily um, is this idea that this landscape we're presented with, this very romantic landscape, um, the translation was mostly about that landscape, so you, obviously you know a lot about it um, and because you've translated it, you can analyse it in a way that's perhaps quicker and more efficient, more effective than if, if you hadn't translated that passage. But the simple idea is, is as follows, this is a landscape and a soil that is steeped in history and which captures a transitional moment of crisis, that's what historical novels do, they focus on moments of national and sentimental crises, really. The landscape speaks of times past and, and basks in this metaphorical sunlight, which hints at a transitional moment of crisis. The reason why I'm talking about a transitional moment to refer to the, sun, the sunset is because the sunset creates this kind of in-betweenness about the whole atmosphere. You, it's not entirely dark, but it's, it's no longer a daytime. The sun was setting upon what, one of the rich grassy glades of that forest. So it's, it's, not, uh, it's the end of the day, but nothing's terminated yet, nothing's finished, and something's about to happen, right? The nighttime. And um, the sinking sun can be seen as a metaphor of, um, of historical development. You know that uh, that particular time uh, is finishing, and something else is going to be starting the novel, but also the uh, specific historical episode that this novel is going to be narrating. Um, so that is uh, the first idea. The second idea is um, is connected with the way that those trees that are personified witnessed perhaps the stately march of the Roman soldiery. I think it, it was a nice way to comment on how historical the landscape was, how time and place, how the sense of time and the sense of place somehow um, um, merge in this passage. And the third idea that I think was worth exploring was how the narrator uh, carefully included his description and his narrative within literary history using a tiny little detail um, 
on the garments of the slave. The, this reference to Beowulf, um, a, an, a hero, a national hero of sorts, um, a Scandinavian hero. So refer to um, on the color of um, the slave, which um, even though this isn't a reference to the actual mythical Beowulf, but rather a reference to um, uh, the father of Gerth, situates the novel in the epic vein and speaks of heroic deeds. This historical novel borrows from those mythical figures and will add to the national um, mythology of the country that will then be um, named called the United Kingdom. My second section revolves around this idea that the passage shows an oppositional landscape that speaks of a timeless history of domination. So as you can see, I'm taking section one a step further and I'm looking at the metaphorical level. First, this um, passage shows a truly binary world with two sides pitted one against the other. I underline um, in green highlight the passages that uh, could have been referred to here um, to help develop this idea that throughout the passage a history of domination unfolds. This can be seen um, through a number of examples you don't have to quote all of your examples but really if you look at the various vignettes this um, passage combines whether it is episodes of hunting the chase or references to chains to conquest to slavery the common point between all of those vignettes is that we see institutions wielding power over the land, the monarchy, the French monarchy, um, religious institutions, the army, and slavery. Slavery was an institution, as well it, has, it had, had rules, there was an official discourse that organized it. So really, this passage tells the story of domination and it does it in a historical sort of way. Look at the examples I underlined in green, um, in green highlight, the laws of the chase, um, the, this idea that the, the inhabitants were subjugated, they were subjects, um, that uh, they were prisoners, uh, of feudal chains again Walter Scott's 19th century perspective on this history I included um, references to the end of the passage as well um, 
it's pretty obvious that this slave is was um, also held captive and dominated uh, he was born the bone thrall of Cedric he's wearing this dog's collar so through through these um, fragments we get a sense of a land really characterized by a violent history of domination uh, of man on man. This echoes philosophical concerns with war in the 19th century among thinkers like Kant or Hegel, but also um, philosophical considerations over human nature. Some of you um, aptly reminded um, me of um, the fact that they'd studied Hobbes in their philosophical classes, philosophy classes, uh, with Monsieur Lyotard. This idea that man is a man, a wolf to man, you know, can be can be seen here. Walter Scott writes after Hobbes, so it it would totally make sense for you to conjure up this reference here. A violent landscape. So here, and I realized this only afterwards, the risk is that this subsection might overlap with what I said previously in my first section, so I'll try to avoid that um, using different examples. The landscape speaks metaphorically of the, the ancestral feuds and still bears its scars. So it's this idea that um, the body metaphor runs throughout the text and um, even leaves its print on the landscape. So one thing I did was that I thought it would be uh, interesting to refer to the middle section of the passage, a thing that has been left out so far referred to this landscape as one that has that had kept open the wounds which the conquest had inflicted so it's really this idea that um, the wounds of the conquest um, the injury that it inflicted on the land echoes the the red light of the sunsets um, the red color here being a fairly easy symbol of, uh, of blood. Others, other examples um, could, um, could be used the way line 50 that um, the landscape is described. That this large stone that it found its way to the bottom and in stopping the course of a small brook which glided smoothly round the foot of the eminence gave, by its opposition, a feeble voice of murmur to the placid and elsewhere silent streamlet. Um, it's this idea that this stone that remains, the only one that remains, speaks of resistance, of resilience, and echoes the revolutionary and romantic um, interest um, Scott has in, uh, in rebel figures. Um, this interest in rebel figures can be found in other 
romantic writers like uh, Victor Hugo, for instance. Um, so this passage, through the opposition, it sheds light on and, and the opposition, the oppositional landscape it uh, takes place in, strongly echoes the romantic sensibility, not only of the time, but also that would mark the, the, the subsequent developments of, um, of, um, of the novel. This leads me to the final idea that I think would be worth focusing on um, in the second section. This idea that, uh, in a very romantic sort of way, Walter Scott here is taking sides and uh, is in fact praising the low life. The character, the only character that uh, is introduced really is a slave, um, is a low life character. And um, the way Walter Scott presents him, introduces him to his readers is, is very positive. Is, is, um, and, and it echoes, again, the romantic sensibility of the time. Beyond this, uh, this uh, binary oppositional history of humiliation that we can read of in this passage lies a praise for humble men. So it's not, not just about humiliation, it's also about uh, humility. The humility of simple characters. Um, this is um, this is uh, so clearly an echo, as I said, to the romantic sensibility of the, of the time, uh, but also an echo to the theory of the historical novel, as critics like uh, George Lukash um, engaged with. To sustain this point, I'm, I'm using a number of references taken notably from the latter part of the text, this, this uh, um, idea that is conveyed in, in the phrases I underlined in, uh, in, in, in blue highlight, that um, Gareth is this wild and rustic character. Uh, his garments are of the simplest form imaginable. Um, this wasn't a negative or an ironic way of portraying him. Quite on the contrary, I think it, um, it, it is one of the reasons why critic George Lukash, in his study, the historical novel, suggested Walter Scott um, is the inventor, in a way, of a new type of novel. So Lukash is this Hungarian literary critic. Um, he's written on Walter Scott, he's written on Balzac, he was a Marxist, um, and um, he suggests that with Scott's novel, um, what is developing really is a new awareness, a new consciousness, to use a Marxist concept, of history that develops. And this new consciousness is all about acknowledging the evolution of the relationship between the various social classes historically. So what Scott does is that he, in, in Lukács' view, is that he dramatizes 
a number of, of um, social changes, critical moments in the history of a society. Here, the, the gradual disappearance of the feudal order and the transformation of England into a more modern kind of country. And that in itself is, uh, is, was revolutionary in, Scott, in Lukács' view. Even though Scott, Walter Scott, as, as, a, as, as, a, as a man, was, was mostly a conservative man. Um, but for Lukács, this is uh, one example, one way in which the historical novel gradually leads to what will um, be um, um, what, what can be called the realist novel. And he really sees that connection between the historical novel and the realist novel um, in the way that Scott writes about social classes. I'm going to finish this analysis with a final section that I entitled building an organic national narrative so i'm really going to combine the most complex notions here and look at the text from a fresh perspective one that tries and characterize the writer's project and how it it can be situated um, in connection with the bigger grand narrative that is a national narrative so the first um, the first thing I'd like to focus on is um, is on how returning to the primeval forest is a way to give a voice to nature and um, as um, and by doing so in keeping with the sensibility of the time Walter Scott gives pride of place to a truly romantic vision of the forest, where, uh, which is the solitary recess where magic, human imagination and, and passions speak for themselves through nature. Um, this is um, an idea that uh, was developed by historian Alain Corbin, who is this... Um, fascinating, I think, historian of, um, of our emotions, a historian of, um, of um, what is intangible, what is um, not necessarily concrete, but um, that uh, he thinks can uh, nonetheless be analysed and looked at um, historically. It's also a passage that stages a move from fragmentation to an almost organic unity that is possible through language. As I said earlier on, organic metaphors of the body abound. There are a lot of them. Um, there's a lot of them. Um, so, with uh, references to hands, to necks, 
to wounds to this color that I highlighted in pink um, on your text. These, um, these metaphors often signal violence and separateness and fragmentation as well as a strong sense of hierarchy which are transcended by the English language. The English language only is able to unify those fragmented, scattered bits, bits and pieces through its unifying power. So in this passage, what happens is something truly organic, a natural process in a way, in which plurality gives birth to a sense of unity. It is from plurality that a sense of unity and a sense of nationhood and belonging stems. At a time when Britain in the 19th century is still in the process of constructing its own fragile unity. So what you could do to exemplify this section is really refer to those um, severed limbs, you know, the hands, the wounds, the necks, and um, and show how they convey a sense of fragmentation and then connect this with what Walter Scott has to say about the power of the English language in this passage that makes it possible for us to read this story for his readers back in the 19th century to read the story of how England and how Britain, to be more specific, became Britain And that makes it possible for us to get a sense of um, how England and Britain came to be, how these 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 national units, really national bodies, originated from fragmented bits and pieces and a long history of violence. So Walter Scott distinguishes himself from historians, but through this passage, throughout this passage, um, he stands at the crossroads really of uh, history writing and storytelling. What I think he's doing really is that he naturalizes the artificiality of storytelling. And by doing so, he legitimizes his own hybrid voice. The interferences of the narrator as he addresses his readers break the narrative. So they sound very artificial, they bear the device as some of you said, but simultaneously they, 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 they naturalize his voice and they legitimize his narrative. They, these interruptions, these interference give him a sense of authority 
So this is how Walter Scott asserts his own voice, asserts his own authority. And so what I think could be um, a final analysis here is um, is this idea that Walter Scott embodies a modern ocean in charge of narrating or mythologizing the birth of a nation. Ocean was um, was a um, a poet, a fictional one that fascinated romantics, and I strongly encourage you to uh, Google him. So that's it for this uh, analysis. A conclusion in uh, a textual analysis should um, first summarize the main points you made. So what I'd say here is that uh, this passage explores the tension between history and story. But as it does so, it ends up producing a national history seen through a romantic lens. So I'm really wrapping things up and um, answering the question I was raising by suggesting that it's not innocent that this should be a 19th century text because the 19th century was arguably the, the century of history writing. It should also be noted that Walter Scott was and still is, you can see this um, if you visit Edinburgh, a symbol of Scottish national pride. And in Ivanhoe, he's trying to change readership, really, and move from this regionalist voice he has spoken in, spoken with, to a more national sort of tone of voice. And by doing so, he participates in the collective writing of UK national narratives in the imperial age, which the 19th century arguably was.